Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our values are our why, and they're central to our well-being and success in a world full of distractions, temptations, and challenges. I created this podcast to explore how values affect our personal lives, our relationships, and the wider world in which we live. Join me, Tom English, as I uncover which values help and which values hinder in the pursuit of success that's both meaningful and sustainable. Let's begin. So we're still in Madagascar at the moment and following on from the last episode that I did, I had a wish to go to Tamatav, also known as Tuamasana, meaning seems salty. And Tuamasana was, or is, should I say, a place of paradisal beauty, clear blue skies, beautiful beaches, fresh coconuts, everything you could want from a paradise. And that's where I really wanted to go. I I really had this strong desire to be assigned there. It was a new area as well. So there was a lot of novelty about going to to Amarsana. And even at that point, when I was going there, I was one of the first missionaries to be posted there. But I really, really wanted to go. And I did get that assignment. I was really excited about it. And I was leaving an Alamaitzi, which was a place of real... I would say real happiness, real contentment, fulfillment, and success as well. I was I was working well. I was really connecting with other people, the other missionaries, the other people that we were teaching. We found some great people and formed some great relationships. But I had my eyes on progress, quote unquote, and I wanted to go to Tuamasana. So I got to Tuamasana, and there were three other elders in the house, much like there were in an Alamaitzi for a period of time. But it was a different dynamic altogether. It was a very different dynamic. We were very much on the outside, just purely because of the geography of the situation. We weren't based in the main city, Antanarivu, the capital, which is where the majority of the other missionaries were. We were very much on a limb. And there was a little bit of tension in the house already when I got there between different personalities and I was coming in as the I can't remember exactly which it was either the, the district leader or the zone leader I can't remember the title but I was there in a in a leadership capacity I'd had some leadership experience in the Nalamaitzi as well but I was going to Tuamasana with that same responsibility and in short it was a real struggle it was by far the, the toughest two months of my mission I really, really struggled on all fronts. I I struggled with the person that I was working with, the companion that I was working with at the time. I really, really struggled with him and he had had his own aspirations for progress as well. So we were kind of, although the, the hierarchy was entirely necessary in the mission, it meant that each of us had to come face to face with our own will to power, so to speak. And that's that that concept of will to power is something it's a phrase coined by Friedrich Nietzsche in his philosophy and it really cuts to the heart of human desire for for progress to to put it very very simply there's much more to it than that of course 
but nonetheless each of us had to work within that dynamic we had to work within the necessity of a hierarchy in order to create order but then reconcile that with the role that we had to play in relation to our desire to climb that and feel like we were doing a good job there was an expectation that you would climb the pole so to speak as you went through your mission and so we all had to wrestle with that and it created a certain degree of tension sometimes and I wouldn't suggest disbanding that at all but it was more for the individuals it was more for us to, to figure that out and figure out our place within that particular structure within that particular order and that's just part of life because there has to be some degree of of structure and hierarchy in order for there to be order otherwise we've just got chaos so there were fun and games there but there were, there were particular tensions around that, that that I hadn't experienced with others that I'd worked with before so we had to have a lot of time to talk and I did take time to talk with the companion I was working with at the time but it felt like hard yards and compounding the difficulties I was facing was the fact that that I was sick for the majority of the time that I was there and it was very strange it was a very strange period of illness that I had and we never really got to the bottom of what was actually wrong but I was getting through the week and, and I, I was quite tired and feeling quite lethargic and then come Sunday or so I, I would just crash and I'd just need to go to bed and I would sleep for ages and, and nobody really got to the bottom of it I had some tests that the doctors did and <laughs> The medical facilities weren't the best that I was using and so so one doctor concluded that I was either deficient of vitamin C or I had AIDS <laughs> which was really strange um, and for various reasons it, it w just wasn't possible that, that I had AIDS and to say that I needed more vitamin C when I was eating an awful lot of fruit and vegetables was was really just not not credible so that was what I was dealing with and it was a real struggle and I didn't enjoy it whatsoever. I, I wasn't being particularly productive with my companion. We weren't doing particularly great work. I just felt hampered at every turn. And to make matters a little bit worse, I was getting pressure from one of the president's assistants about what, what are your numbers like and looking at all these metrics and KPIs. And I hadn't, I hadn't looked at this when I was on my mission to that point. And I had been successful. I had found success in terms of teaching people, in terms of those those metrics and the KPIs that people were looking at, but they weren't an end in themselves. The end for me was about connecting with people and making a difference to people who, who wanted to talk. And again, like I said in the previous episode, if somebody didn't want to talk with me, then I was gone. I wasn't trying to argue with them about whether they should be interested in, in hearing from us or not. So this was really foreign to me this idea of this president's assistant or AP as they were called for short bearing down on me and putting pressure on me about numbers when I, I, I wasn't feeling great and I wasn't really looking at, at it like that anyway so there was a real clash and real tension in that respect and in short it was it was a, a pretty miserable two-month period and, and it wasn't the same as, as what it was at the start of my mission where I was thinking should I stay or should I go it wasn't anything like that but it really wasn't paradise in, in any respect and it was a massive lesson to me in being very careful about what you wish for because the things the things that you see on the the outside 
aren't always going to be the same in reality. It's like an academic called Herbert Gantz wrote, he, he was a planner of sorts, and, and he wrote in, in the planning space in relation to sociology. And he wrote about the potential environment and the effective environment. And the potential environment is, is the environment as, as a planner would see it on, I don't know, an, an architectural plan. And they say, well, well, here's a park and we've put a bench here and people are going to use the bench like this and they're going to use the football pitch like that and they're going to use the tree like the other. Now, that's the potential environment as imagined by, by the planner, the, the designer. But the effective environment is, is how the environment is actually used. So the trees, instead of giving people shade or just being nice to look at, might actually be used as goalposts. For, for kids wanting to play football. And the football pitch might be used as a picnic area, etc. So that's the effective environment. So for me, the, 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 the potential that Tuomasna represented was paradise. But in reality, the, the effective environment that I realized or that, that lived experience that I had was that it was more like, more like a, a, a real challenge. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a hell, but it was, it was a very difficult experience. And it was, it was antithetical to, to paradise, that's for sure. And mercifully, I was reassigned after a single transfer. And if I remember correctly, a transfer lasted for, for two months. It might have been six weeks. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was two months. So I think it was eight weeks that I was into a master in, in total. And I had been assigned to go to the city, the very heart of the city, the very bowels of the city of Antanarivu, the capital and it was noisy it was dirty it was smelly the apartment wasn't particularly nice and there were lads on the street who would sing and make a noise and drink outside your window and everybody was telling me when I, when I got transferred from Tuamasana to to the city everybody was telling me oh man I'm so sorry for you that's such a bad move. The contrast is going to be horrible. You're going to absolutely miss Tuamasna when you, when you go to this place. And they couldn't have been more wrong. I arrived in the city and I felt a, a real relief to be back and to be out of Tuamasna. It felt as though I'd been taught a lesson, so to speak. I felt like God was teaching me a lesson to, like I say, be careful what you wish for and that the external things, the external appearance of things, doesn't always make for a fulfilling experience. And so, okay, lesson noted. Here I was in the city, and I was excited to be in the city. I didn't really pay that much attention to what other people told me about how bad it would be, and how smelly and dirty and noisy and everything else it would be. And I was given more responsibility. I was going to be a zone leader, so I had to check in with with various different elders and sisters I, I think there were sister missionaries in there as well on a regular basis but and usually when when you've got a zone leader because a zone leader looks over various different districts that are within a zone and usually you have companions who who are zone leaders together but my companion wasn't a zone leader he was actually not a brand new missionary but he was another missionary who was struggling a bit with the language and he needed mentoring he needed that guidance so I was put with him so I had a lot of responsibility and I, I absolutely loved it I loved the responsibility in relation to the zone and, and keeping tabs and checking in with with people in the zone 
and I also really enjoyed working with with my companion at the time as well who who was learning from me and, and I was able to teach him and that helped me to get better at the language as well and I learned a lot about negotiation when when I was in the city because sure you you do have various different situations when you're just out on the street every day but everything in the city is more pronounced it's more magnified that that's how I felt and I think that's the case in a lot of cities where you've got a lot of people crammed into a very small space and I remember these local guys who were were hanging out on the street and they would be directly outside of our apartment and <laughs> this probably wasn't the right thing to do at all but but I decided that we were going to have some fun with these guys and so they would they would make a lot of noise very late into the night and there were quite a few of them and so my companion and I had some fun and we decided we'd get some water balloons and we'd throw these water balloons at them when it was time for us to go to sleep and that would be their cue to pipe down basically now <laughs> of course we could have done it in an entirely different way and we you know a conversation might have been a good thing to start with but we decided to be a bit mischievous ourselves and I remember the next day these guys complaining to us about getting wet and so I said well we you don't like getting wet we don't like being kept up all night by your your raucous singing and drinking and all the rest of it so I'll tell you what if you are quiet by half nine ten o'clock which is when we're settling down then you won't get wet how's that for a deal and there was a little bit of a threat in there about some friend that they had who was a big guy and I said well you know I'm big enough myself I'm, I'm not worried about that but how about how about this deal how about if you stop singing and carrying on at this certain time we, we won't get you wet and, and we're all good we can we can coexist perfectly happily and they took the deal and that was that and so many elders had told me before I moved into that house into that apartment that you know you're going to get disturbed you're not going to get any sleep these guys make so much noise and blah 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 and sure my approach might not have been the right one and it was certainly unorthodox but we actually got the job done and, and we were all we were all okay there, there were no there were no problems with these guys in the end and another thing about this another thing about negotiating and navigating in the city is that you are you're more exposed there especially as a missionary because you stand out like a sore thumb I, I got used to just walking around and people knowing who I was and just staring at me sometimes because I'm a gosh I, you know six foot four lanky white guy with a white shirt and tie and a name badge everybody kind of knows who you are and and it got to the point where I, I was quite vocal when, when I was speaking with people. I, I spoke to a lot of people and I was very much myself within the parameters of being a missionary. I didn't give up who I was. I didn't become an automaton and relinquish my personality. So people got to know who I was and I'm quite an unorthodox person. And my name being English, Elder English as I was known, they call me Anglisi. And Anglisi means English in Malagasy. So I'd have these random people Shouting, ah, Anglisi, Anglisi, I want Anglisi. <laughs> I'd be like, who's that? And it'd be, sometimes it'd be people I'd never met before. Sometimes it'd be people I'd known from other areas who had made their way into the city to conduct business. And it was great because I was just seeing all these people. I knew who I was, this, this um, tall, lanky, white guy called Anglisi. And they'd just shout out and say hello, whoever they were. So there was a, it was, it was 
probably the only experience I'll have with, with minor celebrity when I was there as well. But there was a, I suppose, in terms of navigating life in the city, there was a, there was a darker side to that as well. And I have to say, I feel as though I developed my skills in impromptu speaking when I was in the city because we had to deal with with attacks, verbal attacks and sometimes physical attacks as well. I, I quipped with somebody and, and, and various other people at different times that I've probably had more conflicts and more fights on my mission than at any other time in, in my life. And I, I, I don't think I'm too far mistaken in that because there was definite hostility to, to the church and to us while I was there for, for various different reasons. Like I said in, in the previous episode, you, you would commonly see t-shirts with the burning twin towers, Saddam Hussein, who hadn't been captured at that time, and also Osama bin Laden as well. And so it wasn't just taken for granted that we were safe in that place. And I remember in one particular instance at the end of a long day, we were getting some brochettes and basically these things like skewer kebabs and we were just eating the, on the side of the street. You know, it was the, the street food there was actually really good. I don't know how good it was for my body, but it was very tasty and we, we enjoyed rewarding ourselves at the end of a long, hard day sometimes getting these skewers, these brochettes that they were called. And so we were eating brochettes and having a lemonade or whatever. And these guys just started ripping into us and really just ripping into the church and giving us a really hard time. It'd been a long day and I would say I'm pretty uncompromising. I don't suffer fools and I'm not, I'm not, I certainly at that point, I wasn't the guy to, to turn the other cheek. And so I turned to these guys and I challenged them. I said, you know, you guys are stood here getting absolutely wasted while your families are probably at home lacking resources because you are just drinking yourselves into oblivion and you're having to go at us for doing something that we believe is the right thing to do and that is ultimately empowering people to do better and to be better you think that's right you think that's okay and I really went on to on a rant and a tirade with these guys because this has happened a few times and most of the time you brush it off but on this particular day it'd been a long day it'd been a hard day and I just thought I'm just going to let them have it. <laughs> and so I did. And I was so passionate in what I was saying. And I had such strength in my conviction that the guy who owned the place, who was making far more money out of these, these hecklers than he was from us, all of a sudden he just said, Marn Mitizan, which means that is so true. He slammed his tongs down from cooking the brochettes and he threw these guys out. He physically threw them out of his place and basically told them to sling the hook. And I was agog. I was like, wow, was what I had to say so powerful that this, this guy who's making far more money out of these others than he is out of us has just thrown these guys out. But I think, I think what I said had some resonance with him and it was entirely impromptu. I hadn't planned what I was going to say and I didn't, I certainly didn't recount it then exactly as I said it, but it was just totally impromptu what I felt inspired to say at the time. Another time was perhaps more serious than that. Well, it was more serious than that because I was, I was physically attacked in the street and it was a very bizarre occurrence because it came out of nowhere. This guy, he looked like, I don't know, people might talk about mental illness. He looked like he was possessed to me. 
he just started attacking me. He kicked me out of the blue. I think he pushed me first. And then he kicked me in the chest. He could get his, his leg up pretty high. I'm a tall guy, so he couldn't quite catch my chin, which might have caused me more problems if he could. But he kicked me in the chest. And then he kicked me again. And I'm stood there thinking, if I miss something here, what, what's going on? Now, I'm conscious of where I am of who I am, of what I represent, and how this might go down. So I'm thinking, yes, I could fight the guy. And people might say, I'm justified for fighting the guy because he's already kicked me twice, having pushed me initially. But is that the way to go? That There must be a third way between just taking a kicking and, and absolutely leveling the guy. And it just came to me, again, it was just instinct, pure instinct. So the third time... He went to kick me. I just instinctively grabbed his leg and I, I kind of lifted him up and I just slammed him down on the floor. Now, that wasn't a small thing to do. It wasn't an insignificant thing to do because it was a cobblestone floor. And it's pretty painful, I imagine, to get slammed down on a cobblestone floor. But that way, I wasn't landing any blows. I wasn't throwing any punches or, or any kicks or anything like that. I was just literally just picking the guy up and slamming him to the ground. And as I did this... He was, thankfully, he was only wearing flip-flops. So when he was kicking me, it wasn't like he had hobnail boots on or anything like that. Um, and these flip-flops came off. And I leaned down to him and I just said, are you going to leave it at that now? And that was it. He just kind of scarpered off and went his way. And afterwards, people were laughing. This was a very, very crowded place. Very public place. A very, very busy road. Full of people on both sides of the road. And in the middle of the road as well, when cars weren't forcing them to get out of the way and people were laughing and I, I just turned around and said people this <laughs> this isn't funny this is not funny whatsoever if if this nation really wants to progress it cannot have people attacking those who come to give service and do good here this sort of hostility is not good at all it's not good for you as a country to accept this and Again, I'm not relaying it exactly as I said it, and it was entirely instinctive and on an impromptu basis to fit the, the moment, so to speak. And I remember a group of young lads came up to me and said, hey, we, we hear you, we hear you. you. know, People stopped laughing and they kind of gathered around. They were listening to what I was saying. So I was, I was, <laughs> I was teaching a sermon, but not exactly the, the sort of sermon that I was, I was there primarily to teach. And people were saying, look, do, do you want us to he wants to, to, to finish this guy off to really give him a good a good beat. And I said, no, that's not the point. I don't want anyone to give anyone a beating. I just I just want us to think about how we're treating other people and how we're dealing with people who are, who are ultimately here with the intention to help. You know, regardless of differences, regardless of racial differences, ethnic differences, religious differences, let's just figure each other out based on our intentions and the intention to serve and to help each other. So like I say, I, I quip that that's where I learned how to speak on an impromptu basis. It was on the streets of Antanarivu, Madagascar. Elsewhere in the area, I, I was really enjoying it. I was really enjoying working with, with my companion at the time, Elder Colette. And we were having a blast. It was just a two-man house. It was just the two of us that lived together. And we were teaching some really great people. I really enjoyed teaching the people there, Virginie and her family, and one day we found we found a man 
called Philibert, and he, he lived with his daughter. And I just remember finding Philibert, and it was one of those things where it was, and this sounds like such a cliche, but he was the last door that we knocked on before lunch. It was that one, <laughs> that one last door in uh, proselyting, so to speak. That there's this cliche in LDS culture that yeah, just just knock on that one last door. It's always that one last door where you find the miracle, or you find the person who's ready to. Hear. And that was Philly Bear. And and funnily enough, I, I can't be too cynical about this because that was that was Philly Bear. And I remember him coming to the door and a very very quiet man, a very humble man. And it was almost as if he'd been waiting for us. And he let us in and we had a quick chat with him then because obviously we're just dropping in and you can't have too much time from someone just on spec. You can't expect that. But but he, he, he was very welcoming and let us in and was very eager to speak to us and learn from us. And we had a chat with him and we came back. And I remember, I wasn't in the area at the time, but I remember that Philibert had a condition equivalent or something like emphysema and he had trouble breathing, but he walked to church every Sunday from that first time that we knocked on his door and he let us in. He walked to church every single week and it was really quite something. He didn't take any taxis. He didn't get lift from anybody or anything else. He walked to church and what faith he showed in doing that it, it was really incredible to me because i was thinking well maybe we can find a solution elsewhere and have you get a ride or get a taxi bay or something like that but no he, he walked every single week and it was real faith that he showed in doing that and i remember at his baptism he stood up and he bore his testimony about the the gospel and he talked about how it had helped him to transform, not just spiritually, but also physically as well. And he spoke without a wheeze. And he really did look like a man that had been transformed. And again, it came to me that that is why I'm in Madagascar. That is why I'm doing this thing. When I feel defeated by, or when I felt defeated by the things that I couldn't change, the poverty, the abject poverty, the suffering, the struggling, the, the macro conditions of the country, I couldn't change that. But I could play a role in empowering change in other people's lives. And seeing Philibert bear his testimony as he did really, really hammered that home to me. So I, I loved life in the city. I also had a powerful experience. Again, this is from a spiritual point of view, when Virginie, a lady that we were teaching, had a son who was really really quite sick he suffered terribly with asthma and his asthma was so bad that he would just sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and he'd be in a deep sleep and she asked us to give him a blessing so in the LDS church we have we, we give blessings so we have what's called the priesthood and the priesthood in LDS doctrine is the power and authority to act in the name of Jesus Christ. And she asked me to give her son a blessing. And I remember the, the responsibility that I felt to do it. I thought, whoa, okay, so this is me having to do this now and, and he's got a chronic condition and this is, this is kind of a big deal. But I remember giving this boy a blessing and 
feeling like what I was saying in terms of giving the words of not just comfort, but of healing was coming from prompting. It was coming from from the spirit of God. And it was a really profound experience because I'm still a young man and I'm still figuring this all out. And I'm wondering, well, is this for real? Is this is this priesthood thing for real? And yeah, okay, I, I believe it's real. I believe it enough to, to actually do it. But I didn't have a lot of experience in having done it before. And this was an early experience in giving a blessing and it healed him. And Virginie was, was amazed the efficacy of it in healing him and this is a boy who's fast asleep so there's no placebo effect in this because the boy's asleep he's conked out completely at the time but it really really worked and it was a miracle and i was delighted to to play a part in that and to take no credit for myself in doing so because the priesthood the, the great thing about the priesthood is that it's given to men to serve others Nobody is given that, you know, we talk about power and authority and in a worldly, in a secular sense, we think, well, that's about dominance and hierarchy and being able to get other people to do what you want them to do, even if they don't necessarily want to do it and things like that. Priesthood doesn't work like that. The priesthood is about service. It's about serving other people. Nobody who has the priesthood has it to serve themselves. They have it to serve other people. So that was another great experience from the city. And what was interesting was that at that particular time, one of the APs, one of the president's assistants, ironically, it was the one that I'd had trouble with in Tuamasana, was going home. And there was almost like, a, I wouldn't call it a campaign because of course, a mission isn't a, demo a democratic society. It's not a democratic setup or institution. And President needed a new assistant. And it was my cohort of missionaries who were next in line to be the assistant. We, we, we figured that the next assistant would be one, one of the people in, in the cohort that I was in. And it was almost like a presidential race in the sense that the gossip was was intense about and the speculation was intense. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be him? Is it going to be him? Da, 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 and all the rest of it. And the only person's name who wasn't really mentioned in this frame was mine because I was a sort of black sheep in many respects. And although, yes, I had expressed a desire to make progress on my mission, and to have additional responsibilities and to move forward in that respect. I didn't want to be the AP. I, I, didn't, I didn't want that as an end in itself. I wanted to get the progress, to get the experiences and to make the contributions. But AP, I looked at it and I thought it was very much a status thing. And particularly, and forgive me anyone listening who, who is from the US, but my impression is that it's a real status thing that's particularly recognized more, I would say, by American elders and American members than it is it is elsewhere. So I didn't have the big hoo-ha about AP and like, oh, are you going to be AP? Are you going to aspire to climb the ladder to be AP? So I never had this aspiration. I was very much unorthodox, a black sheep sort of character. And my my approach was intuitive 
So I went by the principles. I wasn't rogue. I wasn't breaking the rules and going off piste entirely. But I, I, I lived by the principles and I operated by the principles of the gospel as well. So, so that gave me the latitude to follow my inspiration, my intuition, my promptings. And I was very intuitive and very, very unorthodox. So nobody was thinking, it's not going to be English. Like, really? He doesn't even want it. I didn't want it. And I said to people, by the way, guys, I'm glad you're not talking about me because I, I don't want it. And they figured that anyway. And, and that was that. And I remember one evening, I got a call from the president, basically telling me there wasn't really much negotiation going on here at all or whatsoever, it was just the president calling me up to tell me that I was going to be the next AP, that I was going to be the next assistant. And my initial reaction was to laugh because the irony was was tremendous in, in the sense that I was so unorthodox, I was such a black sheep sort of character, not deliberately, but just because I wanted to do the right thing and do what I felt was the right thing at the time and not be curtailed by, by rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. And so, so that I could really be, be more effective. I, I just didn't believe that I could be effective if, if I was being told everything that I should do to the most minute detail. But anyway, this, this call was, was for real. And I, I did start laughing when the president told me it because it was also ironic that I was replacing the particular AP who was going home because he and I were entirely different, you know, entirely different approaches entirely different philosophies to doing missionary work and there was a lot of tension actually between I would say the presidency including the president the APs and the rest of the mission at the time of this guy's departure there was a lot of tension and a certain amount of distrust and so I was I was been assigned to to this position thinking wow okay I didn't expect that that's that's really interesting here I am. I'm going to be. I'm going to be an AP, and I'm actually going to be working with Elder Massa, who was with me in the MTC. So, Elder Massa knew me already. He knew how unorthodox I am. I was going to say I was. I still am unorthodox, and like I say, I, I don't say that as this isn't about my ego. This is about trying to do the right thing and get the best result with with acting on the basis of principle. So I was working with Elder Massa, and I remember on the call with, with present, I, I, I did, I did laugh and I said, is this a joke? And he said, no, <laughs> no, you'll report to the office at this time on this date. And that was it. And it was like, end of call, click. <laughs> okay. Uh, off I go then. So, so that was, that was great, but, but that was an entirely new experience. So being an AP was, was very much removed from the regular work of, of being a missionary. I was no longer going out onto the street to, to talk to people and to proselyte with them in a specific area. It was more of a mentoring experience. It was, as president, the president told us, we were an extension of him. And so we were his eyes and ears to an extent. But we also, we also did a lot of mentoring work as well with missionaries across the whole mission. And I'm going to leave it there for today because I don't want these these to be too long. I think that's that's about right this time. There's still a bit more to go on Madagascar. I'm not finished with Madagascar yet, but next time I reckon will be. I might be I might be mistaken in this, but I believe that next time will be the last episode in Madagascar. 
before the return home and life after Madagascar. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to 3stewardships.com or message me directly to tom at 3stewardships.com. That's tom at 3stewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.